welcome. It's good to see you here this morning. Uh, good to have Marge James back with us after a semester in New Orleans. And so we are glad you're back. It's good to see you. Good to see other guests with us today, other folks. And so we are thankful that you are here today. Uh, well, if you travel, uh, as I think John and Marge just traveled, you went through uh, security checkpoints at the airports. And of course, it's all under the auspices of Homeland Security. And uh, when I think of Homeland Security, all I think about are those guys, the TSA guys at the airport, who have you take your shoes off, your belt off, and any metal that you're wearing, they go through the x-ray machine, and then you collect it all, they look at your bags. That's my idea of Homeland Security. Uh, but what I didn't realize is the scope and breadth of Homeland Security, the department within our government. And uh, just a couple of things. Uh, it's called Homeland Security, but they have what are called child agencies. There are sub-agencies under them, and I counted 24 different agencies, all dedicated to protecting our borders, our security, and our safety as a nation. Some of those agencies are the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, Federal Emergency Management Plan, uh, Coast Guard, Domestic Nuclear Detection Office. I never even knew there was such a thing. And, uh, but there, and it goes on and on, 25 of these agencies, but let's just pick one of them, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And we think basically those guys in the green vehicles driving along our borders to protect our borders. But here is an example of what they did. In one day, they have 60,000 employees in the Border Patrol, and this is what they did in one day. They processed passengers and pedestrians over one million in one day. Uh, almost 300,000 incoming international air passengers and crew, 54,000 passengers and crew arriving by boat or ship, uh, 700,000 incoming land travelers, uh, 70,000 truck rail and sea containers. Uh, they processed 300,000 privately owned vehicles. This is all in one day. And they conducted uh, over 1,400 apprehensions of people not belonging in this country, did U.S. points of entry. Uh, they did all sorts of things. They discovered, what was it here? Uh, 425 pests at U.S. airports and port of entry, 4,000 materials for quarantine, plant meat, animal byproducts, and soil. Uh, so if you go to Costa Rica, don't bring back any dirt because they'll confiscate it from you. Uh, they seized uh, 10,000 pounds of drugs, uh, seized $650,000 in undeclared or illicit currency. Uh, so in other words, leave your cash at home when you travel, uh, and on and on. And uh, it's just an amazing amount for one day of one of the agencies under Homeland Security. And it caused me to think about our families. And I think of our families as a point of Homeland Security. Uh, in fact, the Apostle Paul in this passage in Ephesians, and if you've been with us, we've been going through this little letter of Ephesians, and I've entitled the next three messages about homeland security, because God has a plan for each one of our families and our lives and how to live out those lives. And so when you think about our nation's homeland security, by the way, they have a budget of over $40 billion a year. And uh, in other words, they take this very seriously, the protection of our borders, the security and safety of our citizens. And so what is needed to keep your marriage, your family, your workplace a safe and secure place as a believer? 
What measures do each of us have to have in place or should have in place in our families to ensure that to the best of our ability, our marriages, our families are flourishing under God's will and His power? The Apostle Paul has answers for us, and today he will instruct us about marriage and about five security strategies, five security strategies for your marriage. Now, we know that God's Word is written for everybody, okay? God's Word is written for everybody, but it is not written to everybody, okay? You see the distinction here? We see very definitely in this passage that the Apostle Paul is addressing wives and husbands, and then later on he addresses children and parents, and then employees and employers, or you know, maybe in your case it is like slaves and masters. Uh, so we recognize that all of it contributes to homeland security in your family. You know, the question is, is what difference would it make what difference does it make if we have what we call a healthy church if we don't have healthy families? Because you are the building blocks, your family is the building block of this local church as well as this community. And so God wants us to be filled with the Spirit to live out His will in that way. Now we know that the institution of marriage is under great attack. And there's great reason for that, for we call it an institution. And you know, all institutions come under attack from time to time. And therefore, I believe that it's wrong to call marriage an institution. It is really the God-ordained union. It is actually a showcase of God's love for his people. Did you know that? As a married couple, you are representing God's love for his people. You are a showcase of that, or an example, a portrait, a picture of what God does. But we know marriage is under attack, and we know that it is the subject of much dissension and problems within our society and within evangelicalism within our churches. Now you may be here today and you're not married, that's okay. Uh, we're going to address that or you may wish to be married or maybe you're a widow or a widower uh, but we're going to address those things because all of us can learn what God has said here in this passage of scripture. I was reading once about a personal classified ad that was put in a New Jersey newspaper Wrote something like this, quote, Adolf, please come back home. The children miss you. The lawn hasn't been mowed in three weeks, and the garden needs a worm like you. Your loving wife, Gretchen. Uh, so uh, obviously there's a few marital problems with Gretchen and Adolf there. And then another wife went to a marriage counselor, a husband and wife, and she was telling the counselor what their definite problem was. And she said, you know, our problems all started when he was wanting to be in the wedding photographs. And so that's another problem. That's a little bit of an indicator that there's a problem in the marriage. You know, I was thinking about the only perfect marriage uh, that we know of is Adam and Eve, at least at the beginning. I'm sure they had problems later, obviously. But Adam and Eve had an ideal marriage when you think about it. Because Adam didn't have to, have to hear about all the men she could have married. <laughs> and Eve didn't have to hear about Adam praising the way his mother cooked. And so that would be ideal right there. Howard Hendricks, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, who did a whole course 
on the Christian home and would help uh, prepare young seminarians for marriage and for raising children. He said this about the Christian home. He said, a Christian home is a place where sinful persons face problems of a sinful world, yet they face them together with God and his resources, which are centered in Jesus Christ. Sinners live in a Christian home, but the sinless Savior lives there too, and that is what makes all the difference, unquote. So today we're going to look at some of these issues of marriage in the Christian home, within the church, within our society and our culture. And again, the Apostle Paul is giving us five strategies, security strategies for your marriage. And I don't know where you're at in your marriage. You may be newly married. You may have been married many decades. And yet all of us are growing in that relationship in the sense that if you are married, it is still a growing, learning experience. We need to understand historically the Apostle Paul, what he was facing there as he wrote to the city of Ephesus. Ephesus, of course, was in a, a, a Greek locale. It was in Asia Minor. It was a center of pagan worship, the worship of, uh, of uh, Diana or Artemis. Uh, there was a big temple there, pagan worship. And many of these people, probably most of them, came out of that background, out of that culture. And they were part of it, just as we are part of a culture. And we all have a background, whatever that may be. But we need to understand that uh, historically, the Jews, the Jewish people, had a very low view of women. In fact, the Pharisees had a morning prayer that they would pray every morning where they said, God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And uh, that was their view of women. In the Greeks were even worse in the first century. Wives were to clean house, raise the legitimate children of the marriage. Greek men found companionship and pleasure outside of their marriages. Basically, women were just property. It, the Romans were even worse than the Greeks, if you think that's even possible. Divorce was rampant, and women had no rights in the Roman world. The historian Jerome records how one Roman woman was one man's 21st wife. And so Paul was calling them to a new standard of living, the Ephesians, and by extension us, and the devastating, dynamic, and revolutionary way of life. It was countercultural what Paul was calling them to, and that's what he's calling us to. You know, as I've approached this passage uh, this week and have recognized that the first three verses, verses 22 through 24, addressed to wives is really a hot button in our culture. In fact, the word submission, all you have to do is say it, and automatically there's a visceral reaction uh, to people who would hear that, perhaps even within this room. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But I've talked uh, marriage many times before. In fact, this passage, central passage, is covered here in Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3. When I do premarital counseling, uh, we cover this passage in 1 Peter 3 pretty deeply. And uh, I've preached on these very familiar and detailed passages about husbands and wives. And I focused on the roles and the responsibilities and kind of unpacked these passages and the instructions addressed to them. And it's certainly appropriate to do so. But this week, as I studied this passage again, been here many, many times, uh, it's almost like I had to see something fresh here. And one of the revelations to me, I guess, from my own study and reading God's word 
on this biblical material on marriage is that most of the instructions given to husbands and wives, wives and husbands individually, can legitimately be applied to either spouse. Okay, legitimately applied to either spouse. That is, most of what is directed to the wife can also be directed to the husband and vice versa. So this message, I want to focus on these five security strategies for marriage and for the family. And then we will also go on and continue next week with children and parents. And then the following week with uh, the workplace, because the workplace has such an impact on home life. And talk about employers and employees. And so it's all about harmony in the home. And then in chapter 6, we see that we have to have hostility to the devil. And so there's this whole issue of uh, the real world example of the family and then uh, the spiritual warfare example of Satan who seeks to destroy our families. And he can destroy your family as well on his way to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these five security strategies will help you and your spouse, if you're married, if not, perhaps you can help someone else understand this passage and give them to them. Perhaps you're here today, you're single, and you desire to be married. Well, these are things to remember, to recall, as you see that in your life. Uh, one thing to remember is the context. Remember context, context, context. And sadly, verses 22 of chapter 5 through 24 have been ripped out of context so many times. There's so many aberrations, so many misapplications of this passage that it is hard uh, to get around it if you've heard many of those things. But I want to set the context again. Remember that in uh, chapter 5, the first one, it says, Be imitators of God. Remember the Apostle Paul is laying out real-world examples, real-world instructions for our life as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapters 1 through 3, he gave us the great wealth and the great benefits we have as believers in Jesus Christ. In 4, 5, and 6, because of that wealth, he said, Now walk this way. Now live this way. And he's instructing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because you have the riches in Christ, because you are eternally secure, because you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, then uh, live this way. And of course, it is impossible without the Holy Spirit's help. Uh, it tells us in verse 15 of chapter 5, be careful how you walk. In other words, how you live, not as unwise men, but as wise. On the detail, uh, three contrasts there. But the key command is found in verse 18 do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation. And here is this imperative but be filled with the Spirit. But be filled with the Spirit. Now remember to be filled with the Spirit is uh, here's your grammar lesson again today. It is a present aorist imperative plural in form. And that tells us a lot about this command. An imperative simply means it's a command. It is not a suggestion, it is a command, and it is an aorist, which means that it, it is, excuse me, the present imperative plural, it is a present, which means it has ongoing things, it has ongoing results. In other words, continue to be filled, continue to be filled, and it's a plural, it is for everybody, it's a passive, it is a passive form, and that means that God is doing the work on us, so be filled by the Spirit, it is a command, but it is God who does the work to fill us with the Holy Spirit. At salvation, you are baptized by the Spirit. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
but it's up to us to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. It's not a matter of us getting more of the Holy Spirit, but it is the Holy Spirit getting more of us, of you. And uh, that's what it's about. So he tells us to walk wisely, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, we are to walk that way, to live that way. And then he goes on to give us four results. How do you know if you're filled by the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a series of four uh, or five, depending on how you count, present participles. Again, present means keep on, keep going, keep walking this way. And we see in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That is, fellowship, speak to one another. In fact, some worship songs are designed where we sing them to one another because we're encouraging and reminding each other to stay firm, stay strong, grow in Christ, love the Lord. And then verse 19, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, uh, speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that's fellowship, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, that's worship. We're directing it to God himself. So the filling of the Holy Spirit promotes fellowship with one another, promotes worship of God. In verse 20, always giving thanks. So there's a thankfulness, there's a gratitude that marks the spirit-filled believer. Uh, and then verse 24, the fourth one is submission and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. All those present participles, be subject to one another. Then the Apostle Paul uses that last participle of submission and he illustrates it in real world examples. Uh, you know, oftentimes we approach our Christianity in a very theoretical way. We can get high doctrine and big theology and, and yet we forget about it's supposed to change our lives. And our life change occurs down on the ground level, down in our marriages, down in our families, in our parenting, in our workplace, uh, and everywhere we see. And that's the Apostle Paul's concern here as God communicates to us. And so he takes that last participle, which can be an imperative, like command, a command, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And he illustrates it down through chapter 6 about verse 17, harmony in the home, hostility to the devil is what he's talking about here. And so, as he does that, uh, he wants to illustrate submission. And so security strategy number one is mutual submission. Mutual submission. Uh, notice that in verse 21, it says, be subject to one another. That has nothing to do with our genders or our position, but it is about being subject to one another, being submissive in our life. We are following Christ as in reverence of Christ or in fear of Christ because Christ set the ultimate example of submission. The concept of submission is it means, you know, our world would tell us it means subjection. It means having the boot heel of somebody in your neck. And that's not it at all. The biblical idea behind submission is to place oneself under, to get in order. It's not anything about our essence, but about our role in life. The model of the concept, of course, is Jesus Christ. You can read Philippians chapter 2, 4 through 8, to see the ultimate example of a submissive Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the manner is to one another. The scope of the submission is to one another. The sense of it is in the fear of Christ or in reverencing Him. As I said, this word is probably the most hated among Many women today, especially in women who don't understand God's word here, it's been grossly distorted and grossly used by men. Actually, some evangelical men have grossly distorted this and have camped upon this. 
and uh, try to make their wives something that they want them to be or think they want them to be. But many wrongs have been done in the name of submission. And perhaps the first thing that needs to be said about submission is that it does not cancel out equality. And nobody else can make someone else submit. It is a voluntary action. It's not inferiority. It's not subjection. Everyone submits on some level in life. All of us do. In Ephesians, Paul says to submit to one another. The outstanding manifestation of true submission, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ coming to do the will of the Father, submitting himself to the Father. No one ever could conceive of the idea that Jesus would find it a reproach that he was submitting to the Father's will. He delighted to be the volunteer in that part, to voluntarily do that. In no way did he regard it as a threat to his equality, which he knew existed between himself and the Father and God the Spirit. Therefore, to submit does not mean, to submit to someone does not mean that you're not their equal. Remember, all of us were created in the image of God. And I have to say this today, in our culture, in our society, in the Me Too movement, in fact, there's a hashtag Church Too movement, there's big controversy in major denominations, uh, Southern Baptist Conference, as well as a big conference back east, and of men who have subjugated women and have treated them horribly, from abuse to oppression, and uh, we should be saddened and very tearful about that. And uh, that should not be, because we are all created in the image of God. And God is not asking anybody to put themselves in an abusive situation. Let me make that very clear. He is not asking you to do that. Therefore, it does not mean you are not an equal. This confusing meaning which the world has poured into the word, submission does not mean inequality or subjection. It means to arrange yourself under someone else for a good and proper purpose. It is a totally voluntary action. We need to recall that. And the church needs to be first and foremost the protector of women and children, anybody in an abusive situation. It cannot be. It is sin. We need to call it what it is. It is not uh, male dominance or headship. It is sin. That is what is going on in evangelicalism today. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember Margaret Thatcher. Uh, she was the one-time prime minister of Great Britain from 1979 through 1990. She was called the Iron Lady. And, uh, but you may not know that she was married. And her husband was named Dennis. Dennis Thatcher uh, submitted himself to her political career, to advancement, and to what she was doing. And one time, uh, a member of the press was interviewing Dennis Thatcher and asked Mr. Thatcher, who wears the pants in your marriage? And Dennis Thatcher quickly responded with great resolve. He said, I do. And I wash them and I iron them. <laughs> and I thought, what a partnership. You know, I mean, I'm sure they had other problems and issues, but he was willing to submit himself to the greater good, not only for his wife, but for his country, that he didn't have to run the show. And the whole idea of mutual submission in marriage reflects the biblical idea of two becoming one. When you find troubles in marriage, you typically will find individuals holding on to their turf, refusing to submit to one another, but mutual submission is mandatory if there is going to be growth, unity, and love. First Peter chapter 3 is another central passage on the instructions for marriage and submission. Peter discusses a number of aspects of submission before ever getting to marriage. 
in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, he calls upon citizens are to be submissive to their government. And that is the call for Christian citizens. We submit to our government. And in chapter 2, 18 through 25, servants are to be submissive to masters, which we will get to here. The call covers that also. And then Peter then says in chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Peter, wives likewise, notice the likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Like what? Like citizens submitting to the government and servants submitting to their masters. But then notice in chapter 3, verse 7 of 1 Peter, husbands likewise. Isn't that interesting? Now what? Like what? Like citizens, like slaves, like wives, husbands are to have the same submissive and obedient attitudes in their hearts towards their wives. It is a partnership. It is not a domineering exercise. When husbands and wives are submitting to one another, there is a spirit of congeniality in the relationship. There will be little conscious awareness of who is submitting to whom. It will be such a natural part of the relationship that it forms the undercurrent of all that is done. There is conversation. You may not always agree on decisions and direction, but you come to consensus. You come to the point of saying, this is what is best for our marriage, for our family, for the situation we're in right now. Submission is not just an issue for wives. Spirit-filled Christians will submit to others, and that applies to each one of us. Submission is inescapable, inescapable universal. Everyone submits. It's divinely established from above. God designed it. Uh, it is humanly encouraged from without Christ's example. It is ultimately enabled from within the Holy Spirit himself. When a believer is full of the Holy Spirit, we will be submissive to one another. Verse 21. That is the, uh, the, uh, the instruction that colors the rest of what Paul says here. Uh, loving is a command given by the Apostle Paul twice in Ephesians 5. Look at verse 25 where he tells husbands, so husbands also to love their own wives as their own body. That's the command there. And down in verse 33, nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife. In Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, Paul tells the older women in the church to instruct and admonish the younger women to what? Love their husbands. And so there is this idea that the, the second strategy of security in your family is sacrificial love. Therefore, husbands have a responsibility to love their wives and wives to love their husbands. Lifelong uh, marriages are those where both partners fulfill responsibility. And to love sacrificially means that you will willingly submit for the good of the other. That's what sacrificial love means. It's a uh, it's different from falling in love. Our culture is good at talking about oh, falling in love. I had a friend in high school who fell in love about every other day, you know, with someone else. That's not love. That's not love. That's infatuation, but it's not love. Uh, maybe you heard the story about a woman and her husband who came to a pastor for marriage counseling and uh, told him right up front, said, we're going to get a divorce, but we want to come and make sure you approve of it. <laughs> well, there are people who would come and try to justify their decision by hoping the pastor would say, well, if it's no feeling left, then all you can do is split. Uh, instead, the pastor told the husband, the Bible says you're to love your wife as Jesus Christ loved the church. And the husband said, oh, I can't do that. 
And the pastor said, well, if you can't start on that level, then begin at a lower level. You're supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Can you at least love this woman as you love your neighbor? And the husband said, oh, no, that's still too high and too much to ask. And then the pastor said, well, and all that's left then is the Bible says, love your enemies. Begin there. <laughs> Sacrificial love. Amy Carmichael, a great missionary to India, said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And that's the idea here in the Bible. What is love in the Bible? We see it uh, translated many times. But yet in the Greek language, there's at least four different words that are translated into English love. And one of them is erako, which is to love sexually, passionately. It's never used in the New Testament. We get our word erotic from that Greek word. Uh, in uh, 2 Timothy 3.3, we see another word translated love, and that's stergo. And it's a love in a filial relationship or family love or related. And then one you may be familiar with in John eleven thirty six 36 is phileo, uh, which means brotherly love or to love emotionally. We have the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Uh, that's not this kind of love that he's talking about. But the final one is agape love, agape love. And that is the love by an act of your will. That is deciding, even when the person is unlovable, that you love them. That's the kind of love that Jesus Christ expressed on the cross of Calvary. For all of us unlovables, he loved us by acting upon it, dying in our place. Agape love is volitional, not emotional. It's not object-oriented, but it is God's very nature. This is the love that God is calling us to. It's an attitude, not a feeling. It's an inner decision marked by outer action. Agape love is discerning, not sentiment. Seeks what's best for the other. other. It's also unselfish, other-oriented rather than self-oriented. As Christ loves the church, love always seeks to purify. It's for the good of the other. Married love is not sentimentality. It is sacrifice. It is not selfishness. It is submission. Without that kind of love, marriage cannot succeed. Cannot succeed. It's an act of the will. And if you've been married a long time, you know what I'm talking about. It's an act of the will on both parties' part to sacrificially love this person that is your husband or your wife. Uh, when, I, when we were in graduate school in Dallas, uh, my day job was working at a large battery international, or national battery company. And in the department I was in, uh, this battery company uh, hired seminary students because they gave us, it was a ministry for them, they gave us brain-dead jobs and, and then paid us more than we were worth. And so we went there, and it was a great ministry. The owner of the company and the president was on the board of Dallas Theological Seminary, so it was a ministry to us. I don't know how much we benefited the actual company, but we were there. And uh, we worked in the same room. There were six or seven of us. And within that group, uh, there were two guys who were still single. You know, they're mid to late 20s uh, seminary students, and they desperately wanted to be married. They just desperately wanted to be married. And uh, they would compare lists of the type of woman they were looking for. I don't know if any of you guys are like that. You've got the list, you know, she's got to be five foot eight, blonde, you know, on, on not only physical characteristics, but spiritual. One guy wanted his wife, future wife, to be able to play the piano. I don't know what that was about, but that was one of the things on his list. And uh, they would compare notes and talk about it incessantly. And of course, those of us who were older and married, 
uh, we just we shake our heads. We tried to help them. We really tried to help them. And uh, and what was this imaginary woman supposed to be like? And one day it just got to be too much. Much. And I asked them, uh, what, what kind of mate are you looking for? They said both of them said one that will make me happy. One that will make me happy. I thought about that for a moment, and I said, what kind of wife would really make you happy? And then they went through their list, describing you know, piano playing, and their looks, and their skills, and all this stuff. And I realized, and I said to them, you don't really want a wife. What you need is a goldfish. <laughs> you know, the pretty kind, with a long tail that just floats around in the bowl. You know, maybe even a golden retriever, but a dog requires some emotional investment on your part. Whereas a goldfish, you know, it just sits there, looks pretty, doesn't ask you to communicate. It doesn't ask you how your day was or expects you to listen to how its day was. The last thing he needed, uh, these guys needed was a wife because their whole understanding was it was to make them happy and to exist to meet their needs. Uh, you know, a wife or a husband will never meet your needs. I know that's a glaring admission, but they won't. Neither will your friends, neither will the church, neither will a golden retriever. Probably only a goldfish might meet your needs. Which is to say, and I don't want to deny that each one of us have needs that are important and ought to be met in some way. But for that, you'll have to follow the example of the apostles when they pray to God, who alone can be our Savior, who alone can meet human needs, because ultimately that's what it's about, and then you can be useful to the people around you, and you can be one who mutually submits in your relationships, as well as loves sacrificially. In verses 31 and 32 of chapter 5, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul goes back to first things. He goes back to Genesis 2.24, for this reason... He's talking about husbands, you know, loving them, their wives as themselves. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's a timeless triangle here, uh, and it applies not only to men, but to women. And that timeless triangle in Genesis 2.24 is leaving, cleaving, and becoming one flesh. Get that? Leaving, cleaving, becoming one flesh. Leaving has six elements. Leaving means separation that includes both partners, not just the man. It provides a context for growth. It involves hardship for both parents and children. It's indicated by a public act. It implies a parent-child relationship is temporary. When you think about it, we only are rearing our children for so many days. That struck me, you know, when my oldest daughter was a teenager, it was pointed out to me that I only had I don't know what it was, 652 days left for her to leave the house. And it just staggered me. And, and so I encourage you to look at your children, extrapolate it out, how many days before they turn 18, go away to college, go to the military, go to work, whatever they're going to do. And uh, that brings some things into focus. And so when you get married, and I express this to premarital couples, is that you are leaving your parents the parent-child relationship in that sense is temporary. You're always parent and child, but it changes. And you're forming a new union. And that union is that God-ordained union called husband and wife called marriage. 
and it supersedes the parent-child relationship. So leaving, cleaving to be glued to includes three truths. It includes, indicates a monogamous relationship. It indicates an exclusive relationship. It indicates a permanent relationship. And so leaving and cleaving and becoming one flesh. Uh, this speaks to the mystery of the physical union, to the act of the physical union. But it is more than that. And Proverbs, uh, I think it's chapter 6, talks about that, about bonding with somebody who is not your spouse in a physical act. It is more than that. It is a spiritual, emotional act. And it makes two people one. And this is the becoming one flesh is the idea that it takes a lifetime to grow together. It goes beyond the physical. It's body, soul, and spirit. Ideally, marriage is the submersion of two partial selves into the creation of one whole self. As I said earlier, marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride. Remember, the church is called the bride of Christ. Marriage, human marriage, is a showcase of God's love for his people. Think about the Old Testament with me. God loved Israel. Was Israel always faithful? No. It was this failure up and down, a spiritual declension. God loved them. There is people, he still loves them. He has a future and a plan for Israel. And now the church comes along in Acts chapter 2, and what's it called? The Bride of Christ. Has the church in 21 centuries always been faithful? No. Every generation has had its heresies and problems and discussions, and God still loves us, still calls us his bride. He's bringing us to completion. So when I say it's a human marriage is a showcase of God's love for his people. We don't get married to make ourselves happy. Otherwise, just buy a goldfish. We get married because we are showing the world God's love for his people. And I think of a showcase. I think of going down to the local jewelry store. And if you walk in there, you notice that right up front in the showcase that used to be to the left, I have not been in there for a while, uh, were all the really expensive stuff, the diamonds, you know, all the diamond sets and everything, and that showcase to the left. What they did is they put the most valuable stuff right up front where you can see it, the valuable, precious items, the diamonds, right there where you can see it. A showcase is what God is doing with us. Your marriage is valuable. If you're going to be married, remember that it is valuable. If you have been married, look back and recognize that it is valuable. And that God has a plan for that portrait of God's relationship to his people. The text of Ephesians 5 contains a number of action words in it. Submitting, loving, and now we come to nourishing. Look at verses 28 and 29. Again, the instructions here. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own wives. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Uh, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And so security strategy number three is nourishing words, nourishing words. And we think about the importance of communication. Now, I know it's been said that women have 30,000 words a day that have to be used up. That's their quantity. Men have about 10 to 12,000, and we use those up at work. We come home, she wants to talk, she's got lots of words, especially if you have little kids in the house, because all she's done is done little kid talk all day. And so now she wants some adult conversation. And so men just suck it up and let's, let's have a conversation. 
you know, when you get home, you may be tired, worn out, your words are all used up, but nourishing words are important. Nourishment, when you think about it, it's, it's like it's like food, you know. We need nourishment for our physical bodies. Well, spiritually and material, we need nourishment in that sense. It's uh, The meaning is to rear or to feed. And we see examples of it. When God fed the children of Israel in the desert, the manna from heaven, he was providing for them. He poured out the nourishment. Ephesians 6, 4, as we will see in the next week, is bringing up children this idea of nourishing them. And the application is our spiritual needs and our material needs that a wife and a husband both. We need nourishing words that will encourage us and sustain us. Not only does Jesus nourish the church, but in that same passage, he talks about cherishing them and cherishing each other in the church, in, in a marriage. And that cherishing, that has the idea of to warm or to heat, the Hebrew word behind that. And the usage in Deuteronomy, it talks about a bird in a nest. And we think about, you know, right now, the birds are nesting and they're raising little ones. And you see the, 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 the mother bird, or some instances, the father bird sitting on the nest, keeping the eggs warm. The idea of cherishing them, they're important. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, there's also the picture of a nursing mother. And you think about a baby nursing at his mother's breast, and you think about the cherishing that is going on. And the application is the emotional needs. Everybody has different emotional needs. Some people can get through the day without any kind of cherishing, but others need it, and it is a benefit to the family, to the marriage. And so we are to practice mutual submission, sacrificial love, nourishing words, and then finally, security strategy number five is honoring and respecting one another. Honoring and respecting one another. Look at the chapter, verse five, chapter five, verse 33. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself, the wife will see to it that she respects her husband. It says in that passage, the wife is to respect the husband. In 1 Peter 3, 7, it says the husbands are to honor his wife. And so honor and respect are the two final security measures that need to be in the marriage strategies that husbands and wives can use for the benefit of their marriage, honoring and respecting one another. They come from the same family of words. They have similar meanings. And thus we can see how a husband who honors his wife would also respect her. And a wife who respects her husband will also honor him. How can you honor somebody you don't respect or respect someone you didn't honor? And there is that thing that goes on. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understandable way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. hindered. Romans 12, 10, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Of course, that applies to all believers, but especially in a marriage relationship. Christian marriages are to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Remember the command up there in verse 18, be filled. In other words, open yourself up to the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding and allow him to work in your life, to empower us to live in mutual submission, sacrificial love, nourishing and cherishing each other in the marriage relationship, honor and respecting for one another in order to portray God's love for his people and be countercultural in a world that does not understand that. 
And so these five strategies, uh, security strategies in your marriage and your relationships. And so the question today is, will you initiate those in your marriage and uh, be the one to start taking them? I recognize that some people, their spouse is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I recognize that, but that still does not diminish the fact that you still have the option, the opportunity to follow these five security strategies to see what it does. And uh, don't worry whether or not your spouse does the same thing. Just give God something to bless through your own actions and see what happens. I believe that the strategies, if you begin to employ them, will accrue uh, even greater gains in the future and protect your marriage and give you secure borders. Now, I'm a fellow traveler. I am up here uh, preaching these things, and there's things I'm still growing, and I'm, I'm still, I still need to learn from those things too. And so we are fellow travelers in this, and we pray that our marriages would be strong. Well, if if we had a Grace Point uh, tour bus, you know, one really nice one with air conditioning and all the stuff, uh, we'd need, let's say, about three or four of them. We could leave after this, have some lunch, and then go over to Montana. And we go over near Glacier National Park and uh, through our home country, and we go to Kalispell, and we'll be there in about six and a half hours. Except I know a bunch of you would want to stop at the gift shops, and so it'd probably be more like eight hours. But we get to Kalispell, and we go about another 25 miles up through Columbia Falls, and we go to a place called Blankenship Bridge. And it crosses the Flathead River there, and uh, just above Blankenship Bridge to the east, uh, you have two wild and scenic rivers that come together right there. And the one is the middle fork of the Flathead River. It comes out of the Bob Marshall Wilderness up to the crown of the Rockies there and flows down and it creates the southern boundary of Glacier National Park. The other one is the north fork of the Flathead River. It comes out of Canada. It comes down the west boundary of Glacier National Park. But they come together right there above Blankenship Bridge. And this time of year, especially with the high snowpack and the quick melt and the rain and things they've had, it is a very tumultuous scene. When these two rivers come together, they come together and join right there. They clash and hurl themselves towards whitewater. In fact, I was reading on a whitewater site, you know, for kayakers and rafters that they're not, uh, they're not saying that you should whitewater raft through there because it's too dangerous, it's too high. And there's a lot of turmoil there. And, uh, but, uh, you know, some marriages are like that. They exist in a great turmoil, especially new marriages. There's that point where, yes, the, the infatuation needs to grow into sacrificial love, and there's turmoil and difficulty. Sadly, sometimes marriages have turmoil the whole life, and that should not be. And yet, you look at the Flathead River there, and it comes together, there's turmoil, there's white water, there's undercurrents, all this stuff. But then after it goes under Blankenship Bridge, it starts forming a bigger river, one river, the Flathead River, which goes down into Flathead Lake. It flows wide and it quiets down and flows smoothly. It's broader, majestic, and has more power. And that's the way our marriage should be. Come together, get out of your turmoil and tumultuous things, and yet it should flow into one. We are called to be one. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for each marriage represented here. Thank you for those who have been married and uh, can teach others about it. And we thank you for those who desire to be married and uh, pray for them that they will be sensitive to your will and uh, that if you have a date for them out there that you would provide.
provide that. And Lord, for marriages that, that exist in this uh, room and in our church, Lord, we pray for your protection. We pray that each one of us can practice mutual submission, sacrificial love, that we can uh, really nourish and cherish one another and honor and respect one another. And Lord, we pray for your great grace and mercy in our lives and that there would be harmony in our homes and that uh, it would be a place of security, safety, and great joy. For it's in Jesus, Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen.